0: Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, February 7th. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, Asa Wynne Stanley, John Elmer, and Tamara Nassar. It's day 124 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have a full show for you today, including a report from a protest, protest outside of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's house. News about a major boycott victory in Japan against an Israeli weapons maker explicitly as a consequence of the International Court of Justice's ruling, a discussion on the possibilities of a ceasefire, and of course, analysis of the Palestinian resistance's defense of Gaza. But first, here is the news. Israel's military campaign in Gaza has resulted in at least 100,000 Palestinians killed, injured, or missing and presumed dead. Around 4% of the population of 2.3 million as it enters its fifth month, reports our colleague Maureen Claire Murphy. The following is from her latest report 60% of the more than 27,000 Palestinian fatalities recorded by the Health Ministry in Gaza since October 7th were women and children. At least 17,000 children in Gaza are unaccompanied or separated from their family, according to UNICEF. Khan Yunus in southern Gaza was bearing the brunt of the bombardment while Palestinian resistance groups fought Israeli ground forces across much of Gaza in recent days. The U.N. Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has reported Israeli forces bombed residential blocks and high rises in multiple areas of Khan Yunus on Monday, causing significant destruction. Heavy fighting continues near Nasr Medical Complex and Al-Amal Hospital in Khan Yunis, quote, jeopardizing the safety of medical staff, the wounded and the sick, as well as thousands of internally displaced persons, according to the UN. While details of a possible ceasefire are being discussed in Doha, Maureen writes that, quote, Yoav Galant, the Israeli defense minister, told troops that, quote, we are completing the mission in Khan Yunus and we will reach Rafah as well and eliminate every terrorist there who threatens to harm us. Three prominent Palestinian human rights groups warned Monday that an expansion of Israel's ground operations in Rafah in the southernmost most area of Gaza appears to be imminent. Such an escalation, quote, would significantly exacerbate the ongoing genocidal acts perpetrated by the Israeli military and authorities against the Palestinian population in Gaza, the rights groups warned. Maureen Claire Murphy writes that, quote, some 1.3 million Palestinians, more than half of Gaza's population, are currently concentrated in Rafah after being displaced from other areas of the territory. Given the current population density of the area, an attack on Rafah could, quote, result in an unprecedented loss of Palestinian lives, according to the rights groups. It may also force hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza to flee to Egypt, quote, which would constitute the crime of forcible deportation, the groups added. The potential scenario could surpass the number of Palestinians forcibly expelled by Zionist militias and the Israeli military during the 1948 Nakba, they said. To that end, the majority of all buildings in Gaza have likely been damaged or destroyed, according to an analysis of satellite data, Maureen reports. The UN estimates that more than 650,000 displaced Palestinians in Gaza, quote, will have no home to return to and that many more will be unable to return immediately due to the level of damage surrounding infrastructure, as well as the risk posed by explosive remnants of war. For much more reportage on the situation on the ground in Gaza, read Maureen Claire Murphy's latest report, Ceasefire Elusive as Gaza Genocide Enters Fifth Month. On electronicintifada.net. Meanwhile, UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, will be forced to shut down its operations as soon as the end of the month if funding is not restored, according to the agency's director, Philippe Lazzarini. Israel has not let up on the attacks against the agency and humanitarian aid deliveries. The UN agency said that a convoy carrying food aid was hit by Israeli naval gunfire while waiting to move into northern Gaza on Monday. Sixteen donor countries, including the U.S., the agency's largest funder, suspended $440 million worth of aid after Israel made unverified allegations that a handful of UNRWA's staff in Gaza were involved in the October 7th attacks. However, as Sharon Jang at Truthout reported on Tuesday, a key Israeli intelligence dossier used by countries to justify defunding the primary aid group for Palestinian refugees contains no evidence to back up Israel's allegations against the group. Israeli officials, Jang writes, were reportedly shocked that the information had even gotten out to foreign officials. The New York Times reported that, quote, Israel has made so many accusations against UNRWA over the years that no one expected this claim to be the one that stuck, the Israeli foreign ministry officials said. Our colleague Michael F. Brown writes that, quote, Israel has long sought to disrupt and destroy UNRWA, the UN agency established in 1949, specifically to protect the Palestinian refugees expelled by Israel during the Nakba. UNRWA provides essential health and educational services to Palestinian refugees in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip, as well as in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. Israel's long-held intention to destroy UNRWA was revitalized late last year when Israel's foreign ministry privately laid out plans to push the agency out of Gaza altogether, Michael F. Brown writes. Maureen Claire Murphy, in her report for the Electronic Intifada last week, writes that, quote, Palestinian human rights groups warned that the suspension of funds leading to the halt of humanitarian aid in Gaza could constitute complicity in genocide. This is particularly so in the case of the U.S. and Germany, two of UNRWA's primary donors. The Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention said that the decision to to suspend funding, quote, represents a shift by several countries from potential complicity in genocide to direct involvement in engineered famine. The Institute added that, quote, it is an attack on what remains of personal security, liberty, health, and dignity in Palestine. The UN Agency for Palestine Refugees is the largest provider of humanitarian aid in Gaza, where the vast majority of the population depend on it for their sheer survival, UNRWA said last week. Two-thirds of Gaza's population of 2.3 million are refugees registered with UNRWA. More than 150 UNRWA staff are among the some 27,000 people killed in Gaza since October 7th, and more than 140 of the agency's facilities have been damaged or destroyed, including its Gaza City headquarters. And that was from Maureen Claire Murphy's report, funding freeze could halt UNRWA operations by end of month. And for more, read Michael Brown's in-depth analysis, states gutting UNRWA are complicit in genocide, both on electronicintifada.net. And an update from a story we covered last week on the live stream. On last Wednesday's show we were joined by our friend Leila Haddad who talked about her role testifying as one of the plaintiffs in a federal case brought by Palestinian Americans against the Biden administration over complicity in Israel's genocide. The judge issued his ruling last week, and even though he dismissed the case on jurisdictional grounds, explaining that the court lacked power to resolve a matter of foreign policy, he did acknowledge the, quote, undisputed evidence that Israel's ongoing siege against Palestinians in Gaza is, quote, intended to eradicate a whole people and therefore plausibly falls within the international prohibition against genocide. U.S. District Judge Jeffrey Wright White called it a rare instance where quote, the preferred outcome is inaccessible to the court. Quote, it is every individual's obligation to confront the current siege in Gaza, the judge wrote. And Catherine Gallagher, senior staff attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights, said that, quote, while we strongly disagree with the court's ultimate jurisdictional ruling, we urge the Biden administration to heed the judge's call to examine and end its deadly course of action. Together with our plaintiffs, we will pursue all legal avenues to stop the genocide and save Palestinian lives. Gallagher said. For more, read my piece. US judge rebukes Biden's unflagging support for war on Gaza. And finally, an excerpt from one of our feature stories written by our contributor, Sondos Al Fayumi in Gaza. Quote, I am very worried about my sister, Dua, she writes. She is a patient at Al Amal Hospital, located in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza. The hospital has been under Israeli siege for more than two weeks. Dua has been paralyzed because of an Israeli attack on Al-Burej refugee camp, Central Gaza, in October. She needs surgery outside Gaza, but the siege on the hospital means that she cannot leave. Read more from Sundos Al-Fayumi's feature, My Sister is Under Siege in a Gaza Hospital, on electronicintifada.net. Those are just some of the many stories we've published on the electronic Intifada over the last few days, head over to electronicintifada.net for much more. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And as Antony Blinken, the U S secretary of state tours the region, his house near Washington DC continues to be the site of 24 hour protests against his direct complicity in and support for Israel's genocide. Blinken and his family hear the protests day and night and see them whenever they leave home. We're joined now by Hazami Barmada, an activist and social entrepreneur who has been leading the protests. Hazami, it's so good to have you with us today.
1: Hi, thank you all for having me.
0: So tell us uh, what you are up to right now, where you are, and what's uh, what's been happening.
1: So we are here on the side of the road, what is behind me. Right here is the home of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on this very narrow uh, road in McLean, Virginia. We have been camping out in makeshift tents on both sides of the roads um, from the evening of the um, ICJ, the International Court of Justice um, order, and also uh, coincidentally the eve of the day, the the federal case, course case uh, against the Biden administration, specifically Blinken, uh, Biden and Austin. Um, We are out here, and every time they leave or enter their home, as you might see behind me, we doused the street and the cars with this red, symbolic blood of Gaza's children, and we have signage all over the place that reminds uh, Blinken of his direct role in enabling, funding, normalizing, endorsing, and uh, in essence perpetuating uh, ongoing genocide against the Palestinian people.
2: And... uh... Hazami, uh, you told us that, uh, we we know that Antony Blinken today is uh, in Israel to discuss the uh, latest ceasefire proposal. And uh, you told us a little while ago that his wife just left uh, home a little while ago. Did she hear you?
1: Yes, absolutely. The wife of Blinken comes by us numerous times a day. Um, we know they've changed the security apparatus of how she comes in and out of the home uh, due to her growing discomfort that we've not only heard about directly from both the police and, and the security uh, staff themselves, but um, also in the way she drives. She bolts right tra- by us, obviously cannot miss us. We are lined on both sides of the road and right by the gate. Um, so we see her entering and exiting. We also see the children um, in the car, although they've uh, put blankets and towels over the windows. Uh, of the vehicles, and uh, she not only sees us and hears us, um, but is also very uh, clearly uncomfortable. And for those that don't know, um, Blinken's wife, Evan Ryan, actually works for the administration. She's the cabinet secretary, and Blinken himself um, has a company which she benefits financially from uh, that actually supports national security, um, which you know the military-industrial complex is connected to. And so, um, you know, we, we all should say that, unfortunately, in Gaza, Uh, You know, there's constantly this idea of collective uh, collateral damage. Um, there is not, you know, uh, you don't spare the rest of society just because you're supposedly going after Hamas And I often say um, two cars that pass by here is if this was an operation to eliminate Hamas If Hamas was hiding in Tel Aviv, would you bomb it to the ground? And if your answer is no, then it's not about Hamas It's about the fact that you perceive Palestinian lives to be dispensable hmm. Which is why we have no problem at all um, screaming at and targeting uh, the family and the, fo- the folks that work to enable a Blinken living this life behind uh, this, this, uh, this wall. I must also say that the security fence has been added recently uh, with mesh, um, so you can't see as easily through the gate, and then additional cameras have been added to the various entrances um, here as we've been out here.
2: So I think we actually have a video, it's not from today, it's from another day when you actually uh, greeted Anthony Blinken in person, uh, at least when he was in his car, we can take a look at that. Now he can clearly see you, there you go, there goes the the blood. You must have a significant uh, budget for red paint.
1: (laughs) We have a lot of amazing volunteers who actually make this paint for us. The paint recipe itself is one of the most asked-about questions that I get um, on my social media. Um, we uh, mix it with tempera paint, which is all washable and food coloring and cornstarch, so it is not only um, edible but also safe uh, to use, which is important just from a uh, ability to continue to do this type of action. We've actually seen Blinken numerous times. Uh, the the video you just showed is uh, right before his last trip to Tel Aviv. Um, so we've actually been here uh, repeatedly since then, um, and uh, just. Said goodbye to him on his way out the door this time around. Also on his way, also to the Middle East. He's been there numerous times since we've been here. But yes, we see his motorcade coming to and from work numerous times a day. Sometimes um, every single day for the last couple of weeks.
2: And and you and you are you planning to stay there for the long term?
1: You know, honestly, I, I didn't necessarily have a plan in mind when we did this. We've been doing direct actions as a group, a grassroots movement, um, now for you know over 110 days all over what we call institutions of power. We physically put our bodies on the ground uh, doing die-ins. We've done blood dumps in front of staff entrances of the White House and State Department where staff literally have to physically walk over the blood that we dump as they approach We can
2: actually look at that. Yeah, let's take a look.
1: So they have to walk through this on their way to work? They do, they do. And it's extremely uncomfortable, and that's exactly the point. Our goal is to center the discomfort. Our goal is to highlight the hypocrisy. Our goal is to make sure that American uh, officials and folks that work in this administration, and there they are trying to go around us, for example, uh, and I tell them you can try to go around us, but you can't avoid your conscience. Um, And we intentionally go during business hours um, directly to the people that are directly responsible for these policies, for the mis- and disinformation that is being peddled to justify the violence and and the genocide against the Palestinian people. And it is very important for us to be there constantly and persistently for days and days on end. We are there almost daily at these different entrances. We alternate between the entrances. Um, But, you know, again, the, the point of us is that Uh, Politicians in the United States are able to sanitize their lives, sanitize their daily lives from the impacts and the reality of what they do in different parts of the world. It's why we call this um, Kibbutz Blinken, right? So we've heard repeatedly the administration has not been hard enough on settlements, illegal settlements in the West Bank and on stolen uh, land um, throughout uh, Israel. Um, And for us, you know, our our kind of initial joke was, since Blinken is so okay with settlements, then he should be okay with this one. Um, Because so often we find that American politics. Politicians and folks that are funding, fueling and normalizing this are somehow OK with it until it's on their soil, until it's in their space, until it impacts them and their families. And that is the direct reason that we are right here um, where we do get criticism, where people say, oh, Blinken's family are, are, are innocent to this or um, something to the effect of, well, doesn't he deserve to rest? Why should Blinken be able to come home at 5 p.m. and rest in this ivory tower with all the security when the children in Gaza and the families in Gaza have no moment of rest with American-made bombs and American-made military um, apparatus being used against them 24-7 with no place to call home with no security, with no safety. And so there's no such thing as being off hours when the genocide is ongoing and you are directly complicit in peddling lies over and over and over again, including, for example, the lie he peddled about Anurwa and you know, seeing very credible evidence literally happened while we were right here in these tents that were flooded. And in real time, we saw Gaza, tents in Gaza that were flooded. Obviously, it's no comparison because people in Gaza have no food. It's mass starvation, intentional starvation. Uh, People have no access to warm uh, blankets or clothes or anything where we are able to, you know, to change and to get people to come bring us towels. But we invited Blinken on that day to come out and join us in these tents to experience just a tiny, 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 tiny fraction, which isn't even comparable of what it's like to be in cold, in rain. Um, you know, outside on the streets with all this traffic around him. And of course, he denied and didn't even acknowledge our our existence out here. But we know that they're impacted by it. Uh, We know because of the changing and all the security around here. And also, uh, I see his face. I look directly in his face every single morning because I'm on that exact side of the street. Uh, And I look through the window, not even a foot and a half away from his face. uh, And I see it. And he looks tired. He looks frustrated. He looks beat down. Uh, So does his wife, who has no tinting on her windows. We see her face very clearly. Um, and and to me, that is success.
0: Good. Um, Hazami, can you talk a little bit about the uh, the legality of these protests? I know that a lot of Americans think that um, this is uh, you know you'd be swept up by police immediately. Um, this you know they they uh, yeah that that police would be very keen on shutting this kind of protest down. But it is actually very. Uh, very legal and uh, a part of our, our you know, very, <laughs> our, our, uh, quickly oh, okay. waning civil rights. Um, but can you can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. I think, um, you know, even I was very intimidated when we first started doing this type of work. Um, we came out to Blinken's house in December. Um, and I remember we used to park way down there and walk up this dark, windy street, you know, being really afraid. And now we've literally occupied not only both sides of the street, but all the parking all around this space is now uh, occupied by our group. Um, I think the reality of, of legality is n- a lot of protesters don't know our rights. Um, it's really important to understand local rights um, and, and local laws, but then also how those intersect with, for example, protected federal activity of First Amendment rights. Uh, we, for example, uh, know that being here um, in um, Arlington Law, which is the Blinken's house is actually on the property line between Arlington and Fairfax, right there literally at that car is the line between Fairfax and Arlington County. So his property is the furthest house uh, on the property line uh, between the different uh, uh, counties. Um, in Arlington County, uh, there are certain restrictions to, to sound ordinance, to what you can and cannot do on public spaces. Um, we also pulled the plot of land, um, so I was able to see the actual plot of land, and highlighted the fact that actually blinken fence actually sits feet, the um, uh, you know, feet um past their property line, which is something that I'll be following up with the county on separately. It appears that their property line is actually further back and their, their gate actually transgresses over public property. So the area that we stand where I took the video from that you showed of Blinken um, actually is public property, thus they cannot ask us to leave from that uh, location. We remind the police often, they often come trying to bully us, Secret Service tries to bully us. There's a lot of different types of security personnel around here from um, Secret Service to State Department security personnel, uh, we've seen all types of security when we do things at the Israeli ambassador's home, uh, folks from the State Department get deployed out to us also. Um, but knowing your rights and then also knowing that a lot of police um, and security expect people not to know their rights. So we printed out the plot of land, I print out the legal codes, I plant out all of the, um, the items that also show that uh, Federal law sometimes trumps local law in the case that religious and political activi- activities are actually protected First Amendment. Um, and so in those cases, the sound ordinance of Arlington County are no longer applicable to us. Now, we have uh, been stopped from using musical instruments um, and big stereos. On the first four days we were here, we had a huge sound system, and I mean huge sound system we had about 18 megaphones with sirens spinning around the clock um, and we know it drove them absolutely crazy because the neighbors four houses down who are actually all very supportive of us um, came and told us that their entire house was shaking um, from the sound now that we were uh, told that we could no longer do because of a state law in virginia that's unfortunately very vaguely written and we are working with an expert team of lawyers now to try to understand because it says you cannot disturb and i quote tranquility of house what does tranquility of house mean? How is that defined? Um, and again, we push back often and say, why is it that people here can live in tranquility of homes, protected when again they commit atrocities? So we use our voices, which is my why. Why my voice is pretty, uh, uh you know, uh, uh, I don't know how to even say that in English. Of course, yeah, doesn't work well, uh, but uh, you know. Um, we continue and we have a lot of people that come out through the day and through the night honking their horns, um, coming to scream with us. And so, you know, in unison, when you have 30, 40, 50 people yelling, facing a house, it still delivers a very strong message without the sound
2: equipment. Well, it's it's really in- incredible. And I want to say from my personal perspective, and this is, this is why we were so keen to have, have you on today and, and let people see what you're doing, I can I can think of almost nothing else that is more important than what you're doing right now. Everything people, I mean let me let me be clear. All of the demonstrations, the rallies, uh, the activism, contacting representatives, it's all important. But there's something so visceral to this because I think it is so easy. It's even easy for us to shut out what's happening in Gaza, but it's even easier if you are protected and coddled by wealth and comfort and by the security apparatus of the United States government. So to pierce through that and tell Anthony Blinken that, that there is a direct line between the things he says and does and the murdered babies in Gaza is so important. I think that 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 is absolutely amazing. And not just with Blinken but also with the White House stuff. And as you also mentioned uh, the Israeli ambassador, let's take a look at, at your action outside the Israeli ambassador's home in Washington.
1: This morning in front of the house of the ambassador of Israel. the ambassador of Israel to the United States, the home of Israel ambassador, we are here to say, you cannot have a peaceful morning, we will not allow you to have a peaceful morning when a genocide is ongoing. Rise and shine! Rise and shine! Rise and shine! Of Israel to the United States, and we are giving him a good morning welcome. We are at all entrances. We have our ready to go the home of the Israeli ambassador for those that are tuning in to the US. We have a shit ton of sound machines.
2: So, so you you you've, you call, we just learned the term you use, It's it's called a blood dump. Uh, You've also done a blood dump at Raytheon, uh, and and we can take a quick look at that too. And then you can tell us about what what what's the message you're trying to send here as well. So that's uh, Raytheon is uh, is uh, is the weapons maker, and so you're also you're so you're hitting the U.S. officials, the White House staff, the Israeli uh, ambassadors home, and the weapons makers like Raytheon. I have a question: Do you take requests? Can, to, can I can I send you a list of because yeah. I'd like to see. I'd like to see a blood dump at the German embassy. Can that be arranged? Am, am I allowed to take requests? We—it's
1: uh, to... funny—we actually have done quite a bit of stuff that is not yet uh, not public. Um, okay, all right. We've done them at the—we've uh, done them at all the weapons manufacturers: um, Elbit Systems, um, Boeing. Uh, Raytheon. Interestingly enough, also a lot of these weapons companies have no signage. Uh, We've done it at APAC. There's not a single sign in front of the American Public Affairs Council that has any signs. We there did what we call dirty money, where we dumped, we threw fake money in the air and started spraying blood all over it, blood water. Um, We also have done them in front of Facebook and Meta, their offices in downtown DC, in front of Google, um, in front of Microsoft, who are all complicit with providing technology to support the apartheid and illegal occupation in both the West Bank and the atrocities in Gaza through spying. Um, and so we we have done these and we continue to do them. Uh, we are taking, <laughs> we do take some requests. We are additionally starting to target more homes um, in residential neighborhoods. Obviously there's a bit more trickiness to, you know, the fact that these are very uh, thin roads. And I'm just gonna let you see how close our tents are to the main road. This is the main roadway and you can see huge trucks coming by and these are our tents uh, where we sleep and so Um, You know, we obviously try to make sure that we keep our people safe at all times um, while doing these actions. And I'm just going to let you, uh, you know, see this, but yes, if we, we are hopefully going to continue to target um, additional people again, this is the signage. This is his entrance, exit of his home. And this is directly what his, he sees bloody Blinken secretary of genocide, all of our signage um, around, uh, you know. uh, genocide that's happening and and making sure people know and we expose this and the signs go on and on on both sides of the road i don't know if you can see
2: those but yes and that's that's amazing the signs are incredible uh and i'm seeing in the comments now on our live stream people some people in the dc area saying i want to come down and join the protest can people do that yeah
1: we encourage people to come out uh, specifically from 7 to 9 a.m and 7 to 9 p.m which is when they're home uh, we know from Blinken in a recent uh, interview that he did that he says, since he's home a lot, uh, he's away a lot, that he tries to use uh, breakfast time as sacred time. We want to make sure that his children hear us and ask the question, Daddy, why are they calling you bloody Blinken? Because uh, that's what I envision. They probably ask every time their car comes by us and I say, your father is a murderer of babies, baby murderer, baby murderer. Um, and we know it's impacting them because they put up, uh, you know, parameter. they put up towels on the windows of the cars of the children, which just happened recently, actually. A couple days ago but yes people are more than welcome to come join us in the evenings and and during the day we do have pretty strict kind of uh, rules around the use of, of things so we don't get shut down uh, but we encourage and welcome uh, folks that are willing to come and uh, again uh, you know we we push the boundary of legal protest um, and staying within the constitutional yeah. our constitutional yeah. rights and what's legally available to us um, and that's how we've been able to continue to do
2: this and, and you want people and, and you also want people to stick to the to the basic message. What is that Correct. message? What what are the slogans that your your uh, uh Yeah, so
1: we're really um, anchored right now in the ceasefire, first and foremost. But frankly, a ceasefire should have happened one, two, three weeks in at this point, when you've destroyed a huge majority of the living um, situation in in Gaza. Ceasefire now seems increasingly obsolete, although we want the atrocities to end. We want the violence and bombing to end. We also are asking um, Blinken to stop unconditional aid to Israel, to do a human rights audit on Israel, um, to exercise and look into uh, the Leahy law and the application of violations of human rights and how uh, countries are not supposed to be eligible to receive aid under our, our legal system um, if they commit atrocities uh, and war crimes. Uh, none of that audit is happening, so that's also a pressure point for us. And then also acknowledging um, uh, state-sponsored violence of Israel. We would like Blinken to acknowledge and the administration to acknowledge um, mass atrocities are being committed. Right now we've only heard Blinken repeatedly say that his heart, oh, my heart is with the people of of Gaza while simultaneously providing tons of weapons and bypassing Congress to provide additional weapons to Gaza so we are tired of the hypocrisy. We want um, the we want an acknowledgement of the violence that is being committed. We want an acknowledgement of the United States role in that whether or not we're gonna get it, we will continue to keep the pressure up until hopefully the relationship changes and enough Americans are awakened to call um, to, to take action. And I, and I want to just add also uh, to date, we have given also 23,000 flyers out all around D.C. that talk about what is happening on the ground uh, with links to resources and information, calls to action, and just kind of an overview of what's happening. We fly our cars. uh, We attend, um, you know, know, over the holidays, we attended Christmas uh, markets and handed these out to strangers. We're trying to meet people where they are outside of the echo chambers of social media, which we know um, curates content based on what you're already interested in. And so that's why it's extremely important for us um, to meet people where they're at, to flyer, to advocate, to be in the streets. We have a lot of cars stop here and ask us questions. Um, what is happening? Whose house is this? Why are you here? That is an opportunity to educate more people to realize that their tax dollars are being used to do this. They're, no one's an innocent bystander if you are an American taxpayer, and everyone has a role to play. And we saw that type of pressure work during the Vietnam War, during segregation, during apartheid in South Africa, and that's the pressure we're trying to build.
0: Hazami, Barmada, thank you so much uh, for joining us from outside of Blinken's uh, fortress there in the D.C. area. Uh, We would love to have you back on um, and follow these protests. Uh, Hopefully you won't have to be doing it much longer. Hopefully uh, a just um, ceasefire and an end to this uh, genocide uh, and a lasting just uh, resolution um will will happen soon so thank you so much for all that you're doing and for being with us on the ei live stream. thank you so much and
2: please give our greetings and thanks to all of your comrades there we really appreciate what you're doing
1: thank you so much thank you guys for having me really appreciate it appreciate you
0: thank you wow well that was uh that was a mood lifter um I mean, it's really,
2: you know, I, I just have to say, when I saw some of those clips circulating, yeah. it, it just made me feel like, you know, I, I've taken part in, the, in protests before, and it, it is very empowering. I remember during the, uh, back in 2009, after Operation, or 2010, it was a few months after Operation Lead, so-called, one of the first big massacres, Ehud Olmert, the Israeli prime minister, came to the University of Chicago, and I took part with several dozen people in a protest and disruption. We got up one by one, and we we made it impossible for him to speak. And it felt so empowering yeah. to, that they are confronted with the their crimes. Uh, and I see people saying, you know, they're psychopaths, they don't care. And I think a lot of them probably are psychopaths. But I still think that confronting them with their crimes uh, is important. It's what we can do, uh, and I just I just found those videos to be so powerful. And other people see them; they circulate around the world, and it, it just it it's so important that they are not insulated from the uh, reality of their crimes. That's right.
0: Yeah, that there are consequences for for their crimes, and that they should not know peace. Um, you know, when when they are helping carry out a genocide. Um, Ali, uh, speaking of consequences, um, you wrote a couple of pieces uh, very recently about the um, economic consequences that businesses um, who are either Israeli-owned or do business with Israel uh, are facing because of uh, public revulsion around the world to Israel's genocide. Can you give us a sense of, um, you know, what uh, what's happening, uh, for example, uh, with, um, let's see, the Japanese corporation Itochu um, taking a decision to end its partnership with the Israeli weapons maker Elbit by the end of this
2: month. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so we can start there. There's actually a lot to talk about, but let's start with uh, uh, Itochu. This is one of these Japanese firms that most of us have never heard of, but it is a conglomerate that um, is involved in everything from textiles to consumer goods to mining to aviation uh, and probably owns a lot of companies and brands we have heard of. So this is a huge company and they announced uh just this week that they are ending an agreement with elbit systems which is israel's largest private weapons manufacturer and which has made many of the weapons that um that uh, israel is using now in its genocide in gaza and uh, Ts- uh tsuyoshi hachimura the chief financial officer at itochu said that the partnership with Elbit was, quote, based on a request from Japan's defense ministry for the purpose of importing defense equipment for the self-defense forces of Japan, necessary for Japan's security, and is not in any way related to the current conflict between Israel and Palestine. In other words, their agreement pre-existed, the genocide. It was actually an agreement signed in March of last year. Mm. And at the time it was signed, the Israeli ambassador hailed it as evidence of, quote, deepening relations between Israel and Japan, relations that are based on mutual interests and shared values, end quote. But the decision to end the relationship taken by Itochu clearly is related to the genocide in Gaza. And this is what uh, Tsuyoshi Hachimura of, uh, of the company said. He said, quote, taking into consideration the International Court of Justice's order on 26 January and that the Japanese government supports the role of the court, we have already suspended new activities related to the Memorandum of Understanding with Elbit and plan to end the Memorandum of Understanding by the end of February, so that's extremely significant. It is, um, and uh, and
0: it, you know, uh, what do you, like, you know, after the International Court of Justice's ruling, um, uh, the significance of a major corporation um, not wanting to be implied um, you know, in, in the complicity with, yeah. uh, with genocide. I mean, do you think that other corporations will follow suit? Sometimes it just takes one for a domino effect.
2: Well, it's already happening and it's not just corporations because the other announcement this week was that uh, the government of Wallonia, which is one of Belgium's three federal regions, suspended arms export licenses to Israel, and and it also explicitly cited the ICJ decision, which, as people will recall, um, ordered preventive measures uh, based on its finding that Israel is plausibly accused of genocide. And I think that it's one thing for people to be critical of Israel, but when you have the world's highest court uh, coming and saying, we think that there may well be genocide here. Now, all of a sudden, people are saying, well, what are the legal consequences for me or for my company? And I don't want to be mixed up in genocide. Right. So there is also a history. I think there's a context here, which is that uh, key rulings in the from the International Court of Justice in the case of Namibia, and this is going back now to the uh, early and mid-1970s, and South Africa's apartheid had that effect. Those rulings, even though, you know, as we've said, that um, the International Court of Justice by itself cannot enforce its rulings, they don't have a a world police force that can go out. These rulings nonetheless have a significant impact because they... uh, they place a legal responsibility on others. If you'll remember, Nora, when we spoke to um, uh, legal experts Susan Akram and Michael Link about the ICJ ruling, they both predicted that these sorts of decisions would start to follow. We also saw this week um, the uh, foreign minister of Spain, actually just yesterday, told uh, Al Jazeera uh, that... um, the uh, that that Spain has had uh, frozen arms exports to Israel actually since October seventh. So mm-hmm. we see governments starting to do this. Is it enough? Absolutely not. Oh, another uh, victory uh, is that um, uh, announced by Palestine Action. That's the direct action group in the UK, and we've spoken uh, to. Um, to them on the Electronic Intifada livestream, they announced that they were uh, notified by Kuna and Nagel, which is a major Swiss-based international shipping and logistics company, that uh, it had also ended its contract with Elbit Systems and will not be working with the Israeli weapons maker again. And this followed a number of actions by a Palestine action Activists at various kuna and Nagel offices and properties around the UK, which involved um, smashing windows, spray painting the inside, uh, uh, breaking into their offices. Uh, That's from Palestine Action's uh, press release. Uh, And as we know, Palestine Action has been doing these sorts of activities for years targeting Elbit systems, and and repeatedly its activists have been uh, criminally prosecuted by authorities in the UK for uh, damaging property and breaking and entering and so on, and have been acquitted because they've successfully argued in court that um, their actions are to prevent a greater crime of genocide. And so this shows, uh, relating back to our conversation with Hazami, that This kind of direct action, you know, uh, of course, people are making decisions about staying on, uh, you know, which side of the law they're on. And Palestine action has shown that they are on the right side of the law with these actions, as the the acquittals have shown, uh, that they actually do have an impact. So we're seeing governments now, corporations taking these actions, but let's also, let's remember that it is at the grass that these things start it is with protest yeah. with solidarity with boycotts and direct action and we'll get to that to more of that in a second but but go on asa sorry no it's okay um
3: i i yeah i just wanted to make the point about the this um japanese conglomerate which i also had, had not heard of but it is uh, you know this massive massively important um global conglomerate. It's, you know i read it's in the fortune 500 uh, Itochu. I mean, there's two points to me about the significance of this. Is um, first of all, as you mentioned, the uh, impact of the ICJ ruling. Like we see that already, and you know, you, we mentioned when we've had these discussions before about the impact of the ICJ uh, ruling that Israel is plausibly uh, that South Africa has a plausible case that Israel is carrying out a genocide in the Gaza Strip, um, and that. Israel must stop those actions. Um, there were people, you know, understandably, who got frustrated with the ICJ that it didn't explicitly use the word ceasefire. Um, although, I mean, really, the implication of the only, as as the South Africans said afterwards, the only way the the ruling could be implemented um, is through a ceasefire. And um, but we're now we're starting to see the material benefits of that ruling, you know, already in these examples you've you've laid out there and in in your new article, I think it's really important. And this is, I mean, we've, you know, we've all been reporting, all all three of us have been reporting on the BDS movement um, for many, many years. And, you know, especially since the Palestinian uh, call for BDS in 2005. And I, I, I mean, I don't know about you two, but I can't remember a time ever... I mean, there may be one that I can't recall, but I can't remember a time ever when there's been a BDS. I mean, there's so many BDS victories we've reported on over the years, but I can't remember a single time when one of these corporations explicitly said, yeah, this is about Israel. This is about these issues. This 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 is um, a result of what is happening to the Palestinians and, and they're not—they're not even, you know, even this. They're not nece- necessarily doing it in a particularly moral way, Um, but they are explicitly confirming it is because of this, and that and protest does make a difference. Because normally they try and get out of it and say, "Well, it's—it had nothing to do." Sometimes they've explicitly said the opposite. Oh, it had nothing to do with the protesters. Um, and it, it was just a contract
0: commercial. issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: even when we crashing. know it did. Yeah. Right. Even when we right. know. It even did.
3: though we know that it, in reality it did, but I, I can't remember. Uh, this ever happening before where they've explicitly said yeah this is because of um you know we support the the japanese government supports the work of the ICJ of the world court
2: yeah that's such a good point asa i mean you know boycott divestment and sanctions or bds activists have always said you know it's nice when companies acknowledge uh that they're leaving Israel or boycotting Israel or ending business in Israel. And there've been big companies that have done that as a result of campaigns, conglomerates like Veolia, Orange, the big mobile communications firm, and others that have left Israel over the years, precisely because of activism. But as you've said, Asa, they don't say it's because of that activism. And the response of BDS organisers has always been, well, it doesn't really matter as long as they leave. We know why they left. They know why they left. Uh, but it, I, I do agree, it takes it to another level when you have companies like this saying, yeah, it's because of the ICJ decision. And uh, and so it may well be that we're entering a phase a new phase where where things will accelerate. And I certainly hope so yeah, in terms yeah. of, of this kind of action.
0: Uh, Ali, you also wrote about um, a kind of a ad hoc consumer boycott against McDonald's um, and how the, you know, a, a major, uh, you know, I think it was the CEO that had to admit that its uh, profits were, were, uh, were being dented. Uh Right. So
2: this is a really interesting story because McDonald's Corporation, and we all know uh, who McDonald's is, um, they held their quarterly uh, uh, sales call or their quarterly uh, call with investors uh, earlier this week. And they acknowledged that they have suffered a significant loss of sales in the Middle East. since the start of the genocide in Gaza, and not just in the Middle East. They were quite explicit in saying um, that uh, it's much broader than that, and it's particularly in uh, places where there are large uh, Muslim consumer markets, including, and they cited specifically, Malaysia and Indonesia. Indonesia, of course, is the world's most populous Muslim-majority country. but they also say, and this is, uh, I'm quoting Chris Kempczinski, the CEO of McDonald's. He says, in a country, for example, like France, that has a larger Muslim population, we are seeing some impact. Uh, and he's, he noted that in France, the drop in sales, quotes, depends very much on where the restaurant is located and if it's in a Muslim area. And that's very significant because it shows really, the power of Muslim communities, not just in their own countries, but also in Europe and North America. Um, And it's maybe a topic for another day, but uh, in the United States now, we see Muslim organizations and communities organizing against Biden to deny him the vote in the, uh, you know, in the upcoming US elections. But this shows that uh, that uh it has a real impact and while McDonald's wouldn't say they wouldn't put a dollar figure on it they were very explicit that it is a, it is a significant impact on their profits uh across the region and they said that they didn't expect things to get better until uh the war ends All right and, and yeah.
0: uh, sorry and i just want to um uh, point out the reason why people have been boycotting McDonald's. Um, yeah, talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, this this is on a number of levels. That Let's say there's McDonald's specific uh, uh, issues, and then I think there's a broader uh, response. Uh, the McDonald's specific issues is, as many people may know, McDonald's business model is franchising. The vast majority of McDonald's restaurants you see are not owned and operated by McDonald's Corporation. They're owned and operated by franchisees who have to invest a lot of their own money to buy and set up these restaurants. And then they share the profits with McDonald's. They pay royalties to McDonald's. And so that's how the company makes most of its money. So in Israel, the uh, McDonald's Israel franchise after October 7th, announced that they were giving away thousands of free meals to the uh, Israeli soldiers taking part in the genocide in Gaza. And this produced a huge backlash across the region uh, in Arab countries and in Turkey uh, in particular. And some of the McDonald's franchises in those countries tried to counter it by distancing themselves from uh, what Mcdonald's Israel had done, and some of them even announced that that they were giving uh sums of money uh to uh in support of humanitarian aid for Palestinians in Gaza but it didn't work because people uh, and and you 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 hear this argument i'll I'll say more about this, but I just came back a couple of days ago from Jordan, and the argument you hear sometimes from business people is, well, you know, it, yes, it's McDonald's, but it's locally owned and operated, and the employees are local people, so we shouldn't punish them. But people didn't buy that, and uh, McDonald's had to admit that it has suffered a significant business impact, again, not just in the Middle East, not just in Malaysia and Indonesia, but in other countries where there is significant Muslim populations, showing their uh, consumer power. And the other company that's been uh, uh, affected, that admitted it's been affected, is Starbucks. Again, another iconic brand name. Uh, And they had to admit that they've taken a hit. They claim to be, you know, neutral. They say we have no political agenda, but in fact, what happened... um, A few weeks ago was that the Starbucks workers union uh, put out a tweet in support of Palestinian rights and the Starbucks corporation repudiated it and actually sued the union uh, for infringing on its trademark because they said the union's logo and name are too similar to Starbucks and people will confuse that their position with Starbucks but in fact Starbucks was pandering to uh, right-wing anti-Palestinian media and politicians in the United States who objected to the tweet by the Starbucks Workers' Union. So far from being neutral, Starbucks was actually uh, rejecting support for Palestinian rights and trying to appease the right-wing. What it actually did was it um, enraged everyone and as a result of boycotts, Uh, by supporters of Palestinian rights and by opponents of Palestinian rights, it saw a measurable drop in its business and revenues. But I think there's a bigger picture here. So you can point at those specifics related to McDonald's and um, Starbucks. uh, But I think what's mostly driving this is a general revulsion at the role of the United States and the West. And this kind of consumer boycott is one of the few direct ways people have of making decisions which they see as supporting uh, Palestinian rights and punishing the countries or governments or corporations they see as responsible. So when I was in Jordan, uh, and I, I, I just came back a few days ago to the United States, it's very apparent that boycotting McDonald's and not just McDonald's, but pretty much every uh, major American brand and some European brands like Carrefour, the supermarket chain, and Nescafe, is now a cultural norm. To the extent that you know Coca-Cola and Pepsi, which were extremely popular in Jordan, you don't see them at restaurants anymore. People are now serving. Uh, local alternatives or, or uh, other brands which are not in the po- public mind associated with the United States. And that's become the norm. If you were to walk around with a Coca-Cola, people would be upset at you. And and you'll hear people saying, oh, yeah, you know, that that you drive past McDonald's and it's empty. And that's very satisfying to them. So I think this is part of a bigger uh phenomenon that is not necessarily about the specifics of those countries but just a general rejection of these brands and saying you know we want to make known to the United States that there is a price there are consequences for your role in this genocide
0: indeed uh well thank you so much Ali for uh giving us uh those reports and of course we're gonna um Continue to follow the uh, the consumer boycotts and the the divestment um, you know uh, uh, maneuvers by major corporations uh, and of course uh, sanctions. I mean, this is it's it's quite a time for um, for people to be uh, able to move uh, the boycott movement uh, like they've been doing recently. Um, incredible. Okay, so we're gonna uh, turn to john now for his analysis uh, of the palestinian resistance and their maneuvers Um, and then uh, we're gonna have a discussion afterwards about um, the possible ceasefire um, and any news related to uh, political negotiations hello john Um, what's been happening on the ground in gaza while all of this has been going on
4: hey guys yeah well we're we're Moving um, forward on the ceasefire talks, but um, the war on the Palestinian civilian population has continued unabated. Um, We're we're seeing the same level of airstrikes and targeting of civilians Um, that that hasn't uh, tapered off at all. The Israelis are not uh, the Israeli troops are not as deep into territory as they have been. In in recent weeks, Um, but the airstrikes are continuing and killing 150 people a day, um, still targeting hospitals, um, still dismantling um, the civic infrastructure of the Gaza Strip, um, while showing very few um, significant military gains. Um, to justify this brutal genocide that we've been watching now uh, entering its fifth month. Um, so Maureen reported, uh, and you reported, Nora, earlier on in the show, about some of the satellite imagery that's come out um, from the Gaza Strip that we're going to show you here um, to give just give people a sense of what it looks like when we're talking about 35,000 airstrikes, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of tank shells, Um, targeting the civilian infrastructure in the Gaza Strip as a response um, to the October 7th military assault, which collapsed the Gaza division and cast the Israeli security establishment um, into disrepute within the society in Israel. And so what we're seeing is the Israeli military Um, taking it out on the civilian population in the Gaza Strip as an attempt to sort of reburnish their reputation um, within their society. Um, And so what we're looking at there is a map of Gaza um, from the north to the south. um, And and largely what we're seeing there is targeting, uh, this is satellite data from the 17th of January. So it's actually uh, two weeks old. It's from the middle of, of January um and so it's been added to uh in this time but maybe we can scroll through some of this tomorrow and see uh what it is that we're looking at because um the uh guardian has taken some of this um satellite imagery that was available um and sort of dug down into what we're looking at um, for the total destruction of the Gaza strip more than 200,000 uh housing units destroyed Um, And so uh, we've seen this kind of destruction in various ways, um, but to see it overall on these maps um, is really astonishing. Um, And it's coupled with um, Israeli videos um, of their demolitions. Um, And so what we're seeing is a comprehensive attack, a systematic dismantling of civilian life in the Gaza Strip. And we know that that doesn't match Uh, Israeli estimates of the dismantling, what they're saying is the dismantling of the Qassam Brigades and Hamas in Gaza, um, where Israeli and American intelligence estimates put the degrading of the fighting force and the tunnel apparatus in the Gaza Strip at less than 25%. But what we're looking at here is almost total destruction of the civilian population, 80% in the north of buildings destroyed. Um, and you can see just in this kind of uh, of imagery, each and every one of these is, is a house, is a family. These are apartment towers that you're looking at right there, 20-story um, buildings with, um, you know, hundreds of families living in one building, um, completely erased. And so this is in the north. Um, and if we move down, it, it's targeting, um, of course, the started in the north um, and then the attack moved down to Gaza City. Um And you can see uh, the areas here in the center uh, of Gaza moving into towards Gaza City. Um, And largely, we're looking at um, the built up areas, because as we've talked about a number of times, if you just look at that, that that total destruction. um, And and what we've talked about on this show a number of times is that um, the Gaza Strip has built up densely populated areas and around it are farmlands in the areas that used to be Israeli settlements. So even the areas that we aren't seeing in red in the the zoomed out maps are actually farmland um, and not civilian um, uh, buildings like this. This area of showing the area of Jabalia to Gaza City, um, just total destruction. Um, And that's what Israel has been doing, not a targeted military operation, um, but a genocide against the population where the red blots cover the entire area. Again, this is satellite imagery from the middle of January of bomb damage um, from Israeli airstrikes, just totally covering the entire area. And the Israeli Defense Ministry the other day bragged about how they have received 250 cargo planes uh, worth of uh, weapons and materiel from the United States. um, More than 20 um, container ships full of weapons, um, totaling more than 10,000 tons. These are American weapons shipped to Israel throughout this 124 days at a rate of two cargo planes a day. Um, unloading this equipment and and then having it be dropped um, on the Palestinian population um, in the Gaza Strip. And and we've seen the Israelis do this um, through their TikTok videos that we also learned this week from a report from Haaretz um, that it's the Israeli Operations Directorate that is behind these TikTok videos that are released um, one particular channel, um, one channel in particular that uh, is very popular uh, within Israel, which shows torture, um, gore, um, and destruction, um, and, and that 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 has been a military that came from the Israeli military, which we of course knew all along. It came from the Israeli military. We saw them. Um, stage the arrests, the mass arrests and and force Palestinian civilians to walk towards them with guns uh, that they said that they had, which they clearly didn't have. Um, And then these these, um, social media videos um, get disseminated throughout Israeli society. um, And they're coming from the Israeli army. This is a goal of the Israeli army um, to create this destruction and to show that to their population, that that's what they're doing. Um, Not targeting Qassam, not destroying the militants, um, but targeting the civilian population, um, humiliating them, arresting them, stripping them naked, torturing them, um, um, destroying the the entire infrastructure of the Gaza Strip, the schools, the hospitals. That's the only thing that's been systemically um, targeted. The, the, There's no sign in any of um, the Israeli military reporting of anything like the 10,000 fighters that they said have been killed by the Israeli military, according to Israeli numbers. Um, Which is more than the total number of men killed in the Gaza Strip. Because we know, um, as you said at the beginning of the show, Nora, that um, 75% of the targets of this war have been women and children. Um, And so even the Israeli numbers of what they say are dismantling um, the Kassam Brigades are just clearly not true. Um, And the New York Times actually for the first time, 120 odd days into the war, for the first time reported on um, the way that these TikTok videos have been disseminated uh, within Israeli society, um, despite the fact that this has been going on and you can see here in this grid map that Tamara is showing us, um, this, these are the mines that the Israelis have laid and these buildings um, and blown them up, entire neighborhoods that we're seeing. Examples of um, neighborhood after neighborhood just flattened um, for for no military purpose. Um, it, later on in this file, we see um, Israeli soldiers blowing up a neighborhood and they're saying on the camera that we're blowing up 21 houses um, in 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 honor, whatever you want to call it, for the 21 soldiers who were killed in Maghazi when they were laying, um, that let's show the clip here. So we're going to destroy 21 houses in the terrace in for the memory of the soldiers that were killed. So you're seeing absolutely no military purpose to what's going on. Um, The original Maghazi attack was to destroy 10 houses in the middle camps area. And here we have soldiers saying they're destroying 21 houses in the Khan Yunus area um, as revenge. This is a revenge operation um, that the Israelis are carrying out. And despite their claims that they're dismantling um, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, um, their own intelligence shows that, um, that Hamas has reconstituted itself in the areas which we reported on right from the beginning when Israel said that they had um, absolute control over the north and it was obvious uh, months ago that they didn't have that. It's even more obvious now um, when their forces um, have had to reinvade Um, Gaza City in order to um, try to have some sort of, that's Israel University that we're watching there, just be vaporized. Um, All seven universities in the Gaza Strip have been destroyed. And we've seen Israeli soldiers stand in front of these demolitions and say things like, oh, now there's not any more engineers in the Gaza Strip because they destroyed these universities. Um, And so you can see clearly the intent. And I guess that's what the ICJ was dealing with Um, Here is because normally in genocide, the intent is the difficult thing to prove. For the Israelis, the intent is the easiest thing to prove um, because there's absolutely no military objective to vaporizing these neighborhoods. Um, They're trying to make the Gaza Strip unlivable for the civilian population. And and in these videos that we haven't showed for this war, I haven't showed these videos because I, I think they're disgusting and appalling. Um, you can see them on social media. And here they're cheering. The soldiers are cheering um, for this destruction uh, of a civilian neighborhood. Um, so maybe we can go to number nine tomorrow. Because um, in Khan Yunus the other day, while the Israelis were demolishing, this is the poorest people in the Gaza Strip. Um, people living in makeshift huts um, in Khan yunis And here comes a D9 bulldozer. Flattening its way for no military purpose through the poorest people in the Gaza Strip's homes. Um, and he emerges here in his bulldozer with pieces of the of the family's homes all over the bulldozer. And there's a Kassam fighter waiting for him right there. Um, and the shot hits the cage of the vehicle. Um, a, a direct hit on the bulldozer that's demolishing these houses. Um, what we're looking at for the, for the listening audience is uh, ramshackle houses made of corrugated metal um, and sheets. And we have a bulldozer, an armored bulldozer provided by Caterpillar, speaking of boycott. Diagrams. Which is in
2: Illinois, just a few miles away. The United uh, States
4: Caterpillar company, company here. Yes. And then you can see this fighter, literally two fighters, because we have a cameraman and a shooter. Um, standing right in front of the, the, the vehicle, the D9 armored bulldozer, and then escaping back to their base through the tunnels. Um, so I just wanted to show that one video. Uh, how,
2: how do you think the bulldozer crew uh, came out that, of that? That
4: is for sure two fatalities. There's no question. You can see um, the weapon, which is an 85 millimeter tandem charge. You can see it detonate twice, um, once inside the cab. Um, and so Israel did uh, acknowledge two killed um, in in Khan Yunus uh, this week. But as we've reported a number of times on this program, Israel's not being forthcoming with their casualties. Um, and despite the fact that they said that they were going to report every day on their casualties, they haven't been doing that in the new year. Um, and they're doing it um, largely to cover up these kind of um you know, these kind of morale, they're trying to keep the morale in their forces up long enough
2: to no, but, but the uh, John, John, when the, when the Israelis do announce deaths like this, they, they say that these uh, soldiers died in combat defending Israel. Does that look like combat to you?
4: No, this, this is, I, I can't stress enough that this is the poorest section uh, of the Gaza Strip. Um, the most impoverished people who are living here with corrugated metal housing. Um, and you have an Israeli military that decided one morning that the target of their day's operations are going to be um, to flatten this makeshift camp. Um, and, and honestly, that video is one of the most um, just straightforward street justice videos Um, that we've seen uh, in this war, the way that that bulldozer has people's homes um, hanging off of it at the moment it's struck by the Palestinian fighters. I just wanted to show that um, in, in, in context of these destruction of the satellite imagery of destruction, which makes it difficult because when we show the satellite imagery, it's all splotched with red. Um, And it's hard to understand what we're looking at with the, the, the totality of the destruction. But this video here shows you what it looks like. This is one of the ways that they demolish houses. They, they demolish them sometimes with bulldozers brick by brick and they show videos of it. They showed one the other day where they lifted the chair out of the house and put it to the side um, while they slowly recorded a TikTok video destroying a house that has no military objective. We watched them blow up that university, Isra University. Um, No military objective. In fact, the schools that the Israelis are blowing up, the United Nations schools and the universities, were used by the Israelis as military bases. So we know that there's actually, A, no tunnels in those schools because the Israelis use them as a base. We know that they're not being used by the Kassam Brigades because the Israelis are using them as a base. And then when they leave and withdraw, which they're doing right now, um, in large numbers withdrawing from the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, they destroy as they're leaving. Um, and so uh, we we will show um, more of those uh, coming up, but uh, when we're talking about the ceasefire and what Israel's trying to accomplish, um, I just always want to start these resistance videos by showing that the target of this war is civilians, and we've reported on it for four full months now. Um, but I just wanted to start off with that. and we'll we'll get into some resistance videos. Um, this is from the middle camps area um, of, of of the Gaza Strip. This is the Berej battalion. Um, and and we watched this video uh, a few weeks ago. Kassam released this video. This is a fighter with a Yassin approaching a Namur troop carrier that has twelve soldiers in it and hitting it at the front. Um, where the engine is um, and where the controls are for this vehicle. This video cut off here in the original video that the Kassan Brigade's shown, um, but you can see in this extended clip that the um, the fighters are firing on the troop carrier to prevent the evacuation, um, and as the fighter that we watched fire the Yusin is walking away, he says, this is revenge for my family. God willing, this is revenge for my family. And the other fighter says, yeah, man. Um, And we didn't see that in the first original video, but Kassam released this extended cut of this. Um, And and I want to just point this out because, and I have been throughout this war, um, of the way that these fighters are honoring um, both their community that they're living in, but also the fighters um, that came before them. And this is a fighter very clearly saying, This is revenge for my family, which is part of the war. um, And we'll talk about it more in the ceasefire uh, conversations next. But one of the things that one of the officials at the ceasefire said was that um, Kassam wanted to have uh, a ceasefire because we're killing their families. That was from a participant in the ceasefire meetings, um, you know, tacitly admitting that the targets of of this war are the families of the fighters. Um, and, and less the fighters themselves. Um, and so that's the video from the Barej Battalion. We saw a couple videos previously from the Barej Battalion um, where they gave shout outs um, to their military leadership who are from the middle camps. And we saw the one from Shijia where um, the fighters left a message in the house that said, um, from this home, we destroyed three armored vehicles. So Palestinians going back to their homes uh, and finding these messages. And we're gonna see more and more of that um, as Palestinians do go home, um, which they will do um, from this displacement. Um, We're gonna see these kind of messages um, from the resistance. So, um, and this is another message number two tomorrow here. This is in Maghazi camp. Um, These are fighters, again, moving through the buffer zone freely um, here and coming out. And we're gonna see a fighter with a Yassin made in the Gaza Strip, uh, with the munition used from unexploded Israeli bombs and repurposed, put into these weapons and fired back at the Israelis. So that's a shot that we just saw hitting the back door of the tank, which is the weakest spot. Now we're seeing a fighter fire a Yassin from an elevated position, which effectively acts like an air force, um, shooting the tank from an angle that they're not uh, equipped to handle as well as the down below shots. Um and so we see here a fighter being instructed by a commander. That's an armored bulldozer and a Merkava tank. Um, and the commander says to the fighter, he says, let's put this one on the table of the war cabinet um, during these ceasefire negotiations. We're also seeing here um, tactical vests that we're seeing um, that we haven't seen very much of in this fight, um, suggesting that there's still significant fighting elements of the Kassam Brigade's um, that haven't entered this fight yet, which is the same in 2006 when uh, Hezbollah defeated the Israelis um, without their uh, most significant units even entering the battle. Um, and so, so this is again the middle camps. This is um, the middle camps uh, brigade, the barrage battalion um, that we've shown a number of times because the the resistance in the middle camps um, has been fierce uh, throughout this war. Um and then let's do uh, number three here tomorrow. This is um in no, this is a fighter. He picks up his, his his Yassin and he says, This one's for Sheikh Salah. Salah Aruri, who we reported on, was assassinated in Beirut. Um, the leader of the Qassam Brigades um in the West Bank um, who was assassinated by Israel. Um and so you see a fighter here hitting a D-9 armored bulldozer um with his Yasin saying um, this is for, he says, the, the direct translation is this is for the eyes of, of, of Sheikh Salah. So like an eye for an eye, the revenge. Um, and, and so these fighters, while they're fighting with skill, um, well-trained, well-disciplined fighters, um, they're also throwing in these little, um, these little nuggets um, of respect for the fighters that came before them, um, of acknowledging their communities um, during this fight now we're watching a video um... and
2: and if i could just say john it's also a reminder because i heard uh, 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 blinken say this Uh, we'll talk more about blinken uh, again Uh, but in the press conference yesterday in qatar uh, he said again and this is something american officials often say that the october 7th attacks that hamas that that has nothing to do with the Palestinian people. Of course, they're disingenuous because they are full participants in this genocide against the Palestinian people. But they try to make this rhetorical separation between Hamas and the resistance in general on the one hand and the Palestinian people on the other. And what these fighters are constantly reminding us is that they are the sons, the husbands, the fathers of communities that support them just the way uh, the Vietnamese people supported their resistance, the way South Africans supported their resistance, the way people in every situation support their their men and women of the resistance. Uh, And I just think that's an important point to make, that that these resistance fighters are not, as um, uh, Blinken and others would like us to believe, monsters or space aliens Who dropped from the sky and have nothing to do with this society. They're defending their community. They're defending their country. They're giving their lives in a cause that they believe in and that we believe in. And it has to be said, and that billions of people in the world believe in. This resistance is legitimate and they're fighting for a just cause. And they're telling, they're reminding us of that. And they are rebuking the likes of Blinken who try to demonize and dehumanize them as so-called terrorists when we can all see what they're doing here. They are fighting a monstrous U.S.-backed army that is murdering children and elderly and destroying universities and homes for no reason. And at that point can't be made enough because we also get this kind of liberal talking point constantly that you have to condemn the resistance if you're going to criticize Israel. And I, I just think enough of that
4: yes we don't condemn the resistance that's for sure on this show um, so the, um, the the israelis have had to um, effectively reinvade um, the gaza uh, the the cent- the gaza city area of gaza because um, it's been very clear to everybody that um, Hamas was not dismantled, neither um, Kassam Brigades, the military wing, um, but also the municipal services. The civil defense um, is still operating, digging people um, out of the rubble. The The first thing that the Palestinians did when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza City was try to re, um, re, uh, rehabilitate. I'm not even sure what the word you use when these hospitals have been dismantled like this, but um, to try to rehabilitate Shifa Hospital. Um, The civil defense, the municipal services, the policing um, in the north still exists, as do the fighters, in such a way that we're able to see these videos responding um, to to claims that we hear um, in the media, that the Kassam Brigades are able to respond and communicate with us through Um, these videos, that the um, resistance has been able to um, continue in the north that we've reported on the whole time, but also that the the civilian services, the governance of Hamas, um, which is also part of the people, is still um, intact. And part of the the ceasefire negotiations um, are to address that, the fact that Hamas is still um, able to carry out these municipal services, um, despite the blockade, the starvation, um, the man-made um, starvation in the Gaza Strip, um, that, the, the, that Israel's military objectives um, are, haven't been reached even in a, a modicum, um, even by their own numbers. They're saying that um, more than 80% of the tunnel network is still um, intact, and they were using that number. Um, 80% based on 350 miles of tunnels. But the Israelis are saying now that they believe there's 450 miles of tunnels. Um, so you're talking about in 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 excess of 80% from the Israelis' own numbers. Um, and I'm sure as soon as the war's over, um, Kassam will tell us what percentage of the um, of the tunnels are still intact, but this is the attack on the IDF's attack on Gaza City. They said we're concentrating our efforts on Hamas's attempts to rehabilitate in the north. All police stations were attacked. That's what they said um, the other day. So they're they're not attacking the military of Qassam. They're attacking um, the civilian uh, police force. Um, at, at, and so we could just see with all of these examples. Um, that the civilians are the target um, of of this. Um, So let's do number four here tomorrow. We can see um, in Gaza City where it took three divisions of the IDF to take um, originally to move into Gaza City. Here we see fighters from the Kassan Brigades moving through the city, um, passing their yassins um, in order to get between buildings, um, that have been the walls have been blown out of by the Israelis in order to reach this Merkava four um, Israeli tank from above, which is um, they were down on the ground floor, and we watched in the video as they climbed up um, to get an elevated shooting position um, and and showing their fighters both with the camera, and here we're seeing the burning tank, where some people have asked. Um, what the impact is of these uh, Yassins hitting these tanks. And we don't see it, as I talked about last show, because the fighters are disciplined and well-trained in order to fire and then get out of the way um, before return fire happens. So we often don't see um, the tank destruction. But there we see there um, a brand new 75-ton Israeli tank um, burning, being hit by a Palestinian-made Yassin warhead that's used, um, that's created from Israeli bombs that um, that didn't explode, that are dropped. And we know that those are all over the Gaza Strip right now. Um, and so after this generation of warfare, maybe we can pause it right here tomorrow. Look at this shot right there um, to give you a sense right there um, of of that. Again, I talked about it last week, but that's just military vandalism. To leave a building intact like that, but to blow out its walls, Um, you're not serving any military purpose for the IDF. Um, You're actually just giving Palestinian fighters um, a high point from which to fire down um, on the Israeli vehicles from. Um, And that's what we're seeing. This is a home destroyed for a Palestinian family, um, but not a military objective um, for the Israelis. So we're seeing that the ability in Gaza City for the fighters to move around the city still we're still seeing them choose the weapons that are appropriate for the situation. We're not seeing anything that looks like running out of, um, of weaponry now entering the five, the fifth month of this war. Qassam um, themselves have admitted to firing, um, to striking, uh, to using more than 1,000 um, Yassin so far in this war. Um, and so that's that a shot from Gaza City, um just to give people a sense of what's happening in Gaza City. Maybe we can go to number five now tomorrow. Um again, using the rubble moving through these destroyed buildings in order to stay off of the street. and this is an excavator um, that's being hit. So it's not as um as armored, as up armored as the tanks are. And so we see him, uh, this, yes, um Kassam fighter. Um, using an appropriate warhead for that vehicle. Now we're seeing a second one from an elevated height um, using a different warhead. This is a third shot of a fighter moving into the street and hitting a tank from the street. And now we're seeing here is a sniper operation um, that took place uh, in the Gaza Strip uh, the other day. And the Israelis admitted to this middle uh, officer here uh, being hit he's a a deputy commander of the shaldag unit which is an air force uh, special operations unit um, whose mission is to quote uh, deploy undetected into hostile environments and when we come back around to the sniper we'll see that um, that he's definitely detected because we see a kassam sniper unit here using an al ghul a uh, Palestinian-made uh, sniper rifle. Um, and there's, we're seeing the fighter inside the building, use his full weapon is inside the building, unlike the Israelis that we've seen that poke their guns um, out of the buildings and are seen. We can see this fighter is completely inside the building. He's using books to stabilize himself. He's using sandbags to stabilize himself. And because the Kassam Brigades are doing so much reconnaissance, it it appears that they're able to, to to determine who the commander in this unit was, and target the commander. Um, and we we cut off the end of this strip to keep the the end of this scene to keep this um, video online. But the the soldier is hit, and the Israelis admitted that the deputy commander um, was killed. And and like you said, Ali Yedio Aranot said that this uh, this commander died in a confrontation. Um, Which that certainly doesn't look like what we're seeing there. Um, But also, just to note, Channel 12, the largest uh, TV channel in Israel, pointed out that this commander was responsible for the Shifa operation, where the soldiers went into Shifa hospital, um, dismantled the hospital, and then took trophy pictures inside the hospital. Channel 12, um, while celebrating this commander, said that he was in charge of the Shifa hospital operation. Um, So again, we're seeing Palestinians not only existing and operating throughout the north, moving around freely throughout the north, um, but we see them selecting the target here Um, and and selecting the commander and hitting the commander. So you're seeing Palestinian weapons being used um, with great skill by Palestinian fighters against targets who are um, symbolically um, the people who I believe will go down in history as the people who dismantled Shifa Hospital. I don't think history is going to reflect on Shifa Hospital and the dismantling of the hospitals in the Gaza Strip um, in the way that they dealt with it in the moment, um, coming up with excuses, um, that, that filled the news cycle while Israel was dismantling, um, the hospital. So, um, that's, that's in Gaza city. Um, and that's the Al Ghul sniper rifle named after, um, the first, um, Kassam Brigade's, uh, weapons commander who's, um, whose vision for the resistance was to get these weapons into the hands of all of their fighters rather than having a few um, you know uh, um, amazing weapons that they would get um, middle of the road weapons. Um, that are usable for, um, into the hands of every fighter. And that's what we're seeing um, 20 years um, after Adnan al-Ghul's assassination. We're seeing fighters using these weapons that are made in the Gaza Strip that are able to be used by all different fighters um, in quantity. And that was the vision of Adnan al-Ghul. And here are his rifle's being used to um, to snipe the, the commander of the Shifa hospital um, operation. Maybe we'll go down into the south now tomorrow, number six. Um, so I wanted to show people this. This is a, um, a field report. This is what we see um, throughout the day, all day for the 125 days of this war. Um, Kassam puts out um, and Sarayal Kuds and the other factions as well put out these very simple field reports. And this field report is three lines of Arabic. Um, translated, it basically says that after returning from the battle lines to their bases, our fighters confirmed that a convoy uh, of Zionist vehicles was ambushed. And our fighters detonated three explosive devices previously planted against the tank and targeted another tank with an. Uh, an Al-Yasin 105 shell in the Al-Amal neighborhood of west of Khan Yunus. So that, that comes across on the social media. They publish that field report and they publish, um, they publish throughout the course of this war, thousands of these field reports. Um, and so we saw this report the other day come out. And then um, about six hours later after this field report, um, they showed us video number six here, tomorrow where we see a fighter move out into the street, um, lay presumably a Shawad, um explosively formed penetrator into the ground, um, essentially doing exactly what that field report described. Now we're seeing footage from behind of an Israeli tank pull up in front of the building that we watched the fighter dig the IED. Um, and you see one, two, three, exactly like the field report said, um, you know, six hours later, we get a video from the same day. Um, So clearly the fighter's command and control is intact. And then here's the Yassin part of the field report. Um, So we're getting accurate field reports. Um, They're very Spartan reports, but we can see that in that three line field report, they described exactly what's happening in this video that comes a number of hours later. And again, so if that D9 bulldozer that we watched at the beginning, his cab was hit with two soldiers in it that were surely killed. Um, There are surely casualties in this um, footage that we're seeing right now, Um, but it doesn't match any Israeli field reports. It matches the Kassam Brigade's field reports precisely. Um, but not the Israeli field reports. So that's Kassam laying a complex ambush, showing it on video and it matching the field report, in effect, um, honestly telling us what's happening on the ground. Um, and we've seen this throughout the war. And I just wanted to show people the way that the field reports are filed. Um, and then occasionally we get videos after, because as the resistance has said throughout this war, um, their operations are far more than what we see on video, um, and the videos, while they 're an important part of the information operations they 're not shooting these videos um, at the risk of their fighters um, the The shooting of the of the video comes second to the military operation it 's not the primary concern, um, but the, it is a concern, and because of these information operations. Um, the Palestinians have been able to show the world courageous and fierce resistance, um, and it juxtaposes so starkly, as we say, every single show um, with what the Israelis want to show their people of what they're doing. Um, this is what the Palestinians want to show their people um, and the people of the world, what they're doing to resist um, the occupation and, and and genocide that's been happening in Gaza. Maybe we could go to number seven um, tomorrow. Um, because here, again, we're seeing fighters. Um, I mean, look at this cameraman, first of all, framing that shot through the the broken door. Um, but now we're seeing a troop carrier, population 12. There's 12 soldiers in that tank directly hit from above um, in the weaker spot of the vehicle. Um, so this is in Khan Yunus, in West Khan Yunus, where the fighting has been, um, the resistance has been fierce over the last um, few weeks. Um, now we're watching fighters use an alleyway. Earlier in the war, we were watching them move out into the street to fire these. Now, later in the war, we're seeing them moving within the alleyways, moving through the buildings a little bit more carefully because, as we know, the Israeli drones are constant in the sky. Um, and so we've, we're seeing the fighters learning um, and, and operating um more effectively um, from concealed firing positions, which is what we're seeing in in each of these videos um, that we're watching right now, is Yassin um, shooters using concealed spaces to fire, which um, defeats the radar um, of the active protection system of the Israeli vehicles, which makes these strikes um, more significant and again we're seeing constantly seeing tanks being hit um, armored vehicles being hit and bulldozers being hit and when we talk about the ceasefire um, this is one of the reasons that israel needs a ceasefire is that these weaponry um, they, they don't have infinite uh, amounts of these vehicles we've 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 seen scores of bulldozers destroyed um, throughout this war um, so maybe we can do number eight tomorrow um, this this is the first time um, this is a night ambush Um, And and we haven't showed any from the night. So I wanted to show people that the resistance is around the clock. Um, But you can see at the beginning of this clip that starts at night, and the fighter says, there's the soldier, there's the soldiers, and they hit them with what looks like a thermobaric uh, warhead. Um, And so the fighting is happening at night as well. Um, Again, you see fighters here in this next clip, moving through, um, moving through close to buildings, staying away from um, the drones and here we're going to see two fighters um, targeting the same bulldozer. The first shot with an 85 millimeter which is a smaller warhead um, to penetrate the slat armor, the vertical armor, um, the sl- the slats that the um, D9 bulldozer has and so that degrades the, um, the armor and then we're seeing the second fighter come with a Yassin one o five and hit the same bulldozer, so we're seeing now multiple strikes on the same target, and the fighters are are exiting freely and as that field report by Kasam said they're returning to their bases to report on these. These are not martyrdom missions um the safety of the fighters and is is the primacy these are these are not um uh, suicide missions by these fighters. They're attempting to come back and fight another day, which is what's happening all throughout the Gaza Strip is that these fighters um, are gaining um, urban warfare skills that make the next war the next time Israel attempts a genocide. Um, this is a deterrence um, for that because we have now um, you know fifty thousand fighters in the Gaza Strip who are now five months. Um, of skilled fighting under their belts um, that that forces Israel to have negotiations in Paris for a ceasefire um, that we're seeing. Um, Again, so we're seeing them choose these warheads in a way that suggests that they're they're not running out of them because they're using uh, appropriate weapons for the moments, for the circumstances, for the different types of armor. Um, they're using multiple shooters against the same vehicle which is something that we um, we hadn't seen uh much before and then let's just show real quickly just to wrap up here um tomorrow let's show the the drones the is um kasam showed this quadcopter um, that we showed also um last show we, look at that quadcopter it's it's un, it's not even there's not even a scratch on it which seems to indicate and we've seen now um I want to say dozens of these. We've seen many videos um, of these videos of these quadcopters. Some of them are, are damaged. We've seen some of them that are clearly shot out of the sky. Um, but we can see on that quadcopter that it's pretty clear that the Palestinians are seizing these quadcopters and safely landing them. Um, through some sort of um, techno- technological advance that I'm sure we're going to hear about in the documentaries after, because um, somebody in the Kassam air defense unit has figured out how to GPS spoof um, to 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 jam the frequency and then GPS spoof and literally land the drones, um, presumably into the hand of these fighters because they're not falling uh out of the sky and then we just show the next one quickly tomorrow this is al quds showing us this is islamic jihad's armed wing um showing us uh footage of using the drone um and taking out uh the sim card, or taking out the sd card right out of the drone i'm not sure if this is uh poor opsec for um Sarail Kuds, but they're showing us that they actually get the video out of these um quadcopters that the Israelis are using. Um, and then in this video, Sarail Kuds is showing the footage from the drone that was collected from the drone. Um, also, that drone, look, it's not a scratch on it. Um, and if those were to fall out of the sky, um, you know, the, the propellers would break off. Um, so it seems pretty clear that the Kassam engineers um, have figured out a way to hack into these signals and land these safely. And here's Sarayal Kuds showing the Israeli drone footage and then using that drone footage for a multi-pronged uh, mor- uh, mortar barrage um, from four different locations that they're showing us here now on video. Um, they're fighters using various sized mortars and targeting the Israeli position using the Israeli drone that they have captured, um, which is just something that's remarkable to have happening um, during the intensity of this war, um, the ferocity and destruction of this war, um, this genocide, um, that Palestinians are are able to do this and able to show us this um, as the war is going on, which is something, and that's, this is Saral Quds showing us, the evacuation, the medical evacuation from that mortar barrage. And as I've said on the show before, it's pretty clear that the Palestinians are not targeting um, the medevac air flights out of Gaza. Um, While while the Israelis target um, Gaza civilians and hospitals, um, we're seeing the Kassam Brigades and, and the Palestinian resistance targeting military targets and not hitting um, a medevac helicopter, which we've seen, because these and even the Israelis have bragged about um, how these medevacs have come right into what they they call the heart of the Gaza Strip, right, um, right, right into the downtown areas, right into the urban. And,
2: and we know that they have they have the capability to target helicopters. They took one down on October seventh, and we know that they've said they've targeted helicopters with uh, SAM missiles. Yeah, they can hit uh, them with Yassin's if they're on the yeah. ground, right? So, yeah.
4: so the, it's pretty clear that they're not um, doing that. And the Israelis have, uh, just this last week, um, praised their uh, one of their medevac units um, for doing 1,500 uh, medical evacuations from the Gaza Strip, which is incidentally more numbers just from that one unit than the Israelis have said um, have been injured in the whole ground war. And we know that there's a completely separate unit, an Air Force unit, Unit 669, um, that itself has carried out more than 1,000 uh, medevacs. So they're either medevacking nobody in these medevac flights um, or Israel's covering up their casualties, which I think is is pretty clear to everybody, Um, even in Israel, we're seeing. um, And we have seen conversations about uh, how how they haven't been forthcoming with their um, civilian casualties. So those are the resistance videos for this week. And just to put a uh, to underscore again, every video that you just watched happened since the last time you saw us. Uh, uh here these are all from this week they clearly show that the Except there was
2: what, there was one just there was the one the one you showed the longer cut which well was, they
4: released that this week they yeah, released the longer yeah. version where he says that this is revenge for yeah. for my family so so we're seeing this the the tempo of operations um abu obeda said the other day that um in a 3 day period the Isra- uh, the palestinians hit uh, 43 israeli armored vehicles Um, in 17 operations and seized four drones and we know last week that they seized eight drones so we're talking about dozens of drones that they're taking Um, and just to put one point on those drones um, it appears that those drones are the drones that they're shooting their tiktok videos with right so just to add a, a further underscore that um that the that these um quadcopters that the Israelis are actually putting them up in the air in order to show their demolition, to show their population um, in an attempt to restore, um, you know, the to burnish the reputation uh, of their um, Gaza division, of their military writ large after it was collapsed on October 7th um, and its soldiers were captured
0: outstanding. Uh <laughs> thank you John uh for that. Um and uh before we end we wanted to have a discussion about uh the the negotiations uh for a possible ceasefire that are happening um right now uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show blinken um is uh is uh bouncing around uh Europe and the Middle East um, what do we know about what's happening?
2: Well, can I just say we we wanted to have John present that before talking about the the ceasefire talks because I think it's important to root our understanding of these talks in the military reality on the ground. and what yeah. what we've just seen is that the resistance is continuing to fight, is continuing to um, to to land painful blows on the enemy is continuing to uh, cause uh, major losses to the enemy, and that context is very important, because uh, what happened yesterday in Doha, uh, in Qatar, is that uh, Antony Blinken was there, and as we mentioned earlier, uh, the Qatari foreign minister, of course, Qatar, along with Egypt, has been one of the key mediators between the resistance and Israel and the United States, Israel and the United States being on one side as enemies of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian resistance being on the other side. Um, And so Qatar said, uh, the foreign minister said that uh, Hamas responded positively to a framework for a ceasefire that was hammered out in paris by the united states uh, and uh, qatar and egypt and it was interesting that hamas took its time to respond they took Mm -hmm. something like a week you know there was sort of anticipation every day when is hamas going to respond well they finally responded the qatari foreign minister said you know they responded positively they, they have some reservations that they've sent us, and we're not going to say more because of the sensitivity of the negotiations. Uh, but then yesterday, there were a number of interviews and statements and press conferences by various uh, representatives of the resistance factions. I watched uh, an interview with uh, Mohammed al-Hindi, the deputy uh, uh, chief of... Uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and also with Ghazi Hamad who is uh, one of the leaders of Hamas and they were very consistent they said we won't go into too much detail but basically our proposals or, or our response and by the way this was a response that came as a unified front from all the resistance factions so the response Hamas gave was on behalf of all the resistance factions they said we stick to our basic Uh, principles. And it became clearer what those principles are this morning when uh, details of the uh, Palestinian counteroffer have been revealed in the media. And basically the Palestinian proposal, just to give a brief outline of it, is for um, uh, a, a truce or ceasefire of three phases, which with each phase lasting up to forty-five days, so a total of one hundred and thirty-five days. But they're very clear that at the end of this, they expect a permanent ceasefire. They they that's part of this phasing is that there would be negotiations to turn this into a permanent ceasefire. But in the first phase, there would be uh, an exchange of uh, captives where the uh, elderly captives and the ones who are un- under 19 years old i didn't know that there were any left but apparently they there may be will be released and the israelis will release a number of prisoners there will be a um, massive flow of aid into gaza and the israelis will uh, relocate uh, out of um populated areas in gaza in the second phase, there would be we would get to the exchange of uh, Israeli prisoners of war, military prisoners, and uh, more prominent Palestinian prisoners, those with very long sentences or political leaders. There would be um, the beginnings of reconstruction, a complete withdrawal from Gaza uh, by the Israeli forces, and in the third phase, we would get to things like uh, reconstruction completely ending the siege on Gaza, and a permanent ceasefire. I may have, have got some of the elements that belong in one phase, put them into another, but that that's just to give you a basic idea of how they think about it. I read the whole proposal, at least the text of what is said to be the proposal, and it looks to me very reasonable, very moderate, very pragmatic, um, and yet I can't imagine Israel signing on to it. Uh, The Israeli leaders are at the same time insisting Netanyahu and the the defense minister Yav Galant that they intend to pursue the war to the very end. Uh, Their goals are the complete destruction of Hamas. Uh, Netanyahu has talked about imposing a military government on Gaza, that it will be like the West Bank where... You know, the Israelis can go into any community at any time. Uh, and they're still talking about that way. And they're also threatening a full-scale invasion of Rafah, the, southern city, the southernmost city in Gaza that borders Egypt, and which normally has a population of some 300,000. But now it's closer to one and a half million because so many people are sheltering there, trying to escape the genocide further north. So it seems to me that the gap between uh, the very uh, moderate and reasonable Palestinian proposals and the extremist position of the Israeli government, at least if we can call it that, because there's so much division and disarray in is the Israeli leadership that, that they don't seem to even have a unified position, and they haven't yet given a formal response to um, the proposals, although uh, that may come any time with Blinken uh, there today. But I just want to say that the very fact that Israel and the United States are negotiating with Hamas and Blinken is essentially the the mediator, the shuttle between the Hamas leadership and Israel uh, right now, is already a defeat for Israel because Israel had uh, led us all to believe that within a couple of weeks of the start of the war, they would have already completely destroyed Hamas, eradicated them from the face of the earth. The Biden administration fully supported that role, as did all the European countries and the EU and so on. There there was this sort of uh, almost gleeful uh, expectation that Hamas would be eradicated. And here they are with Hamas taking both the military initiative on the ground, as we've seen, and the political initiative in terms of laying out this detailed proposal. Uh, So it's difficult to see. We've had some of our friends and colleagues in Gaza telling us that there's a lot of hope and optimism uh, in Gaza, hope for a ceasefire. Um, but it's very hard to see those gaps being closed, at least if we take at face value what the Israeli leaders are saying. Whether the reality on the ground will dictate uh, a different outcome is uh, remains to be seen, but that, that's where we are for now. I, I'm curious to hear what uh, Nora, John, and Asa think uh, about this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, if if a ceasefire proposal is accepted, um, where are the guarantees that Israel won't, uh, you know, completely violate it? Um,
2: I mean, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that uh, the the uh, resistance leaders have made clear repeatedly and and said in various interviews over the last 24 hours is that there have to be international guarantees that we don't trust israel uh, and there's no reason to trust israel of course uh, and that um the uh during the the week-long truce in november that israel violated that as we saw when they killed civilians or fired at civilians trying to return to their homes that there have to be international guarantees. So of course, uh, that would include guarantees from the United States, perhaps from the Europeans, from Turkey, from Egypt, and so on. Uh, And that Israel would have to be held to account for uh, um, abiding by any agreement that, that is eventually signed. Yeah.
4: well they built they wrote the they wrote the the, the Hamas um, agreement is written in stages um in order that it's honored so the first stage um, is essentially releasing the rest of the civilians that could have been released on the first day but yeah. also could have been released in the first um exchange and so and then there's um but the Israel
2: refused
4: just right to be clear right. But there's, there's amendments to, um, um, to the stage, to the first stage that um, have to be met before the second stage kicks in. And the second stage is the release of the soldiers. Um, so um, Hamas has built this um, proposal um, so that the release of the soldiers doesn't happen before um, the guarantees that they're asking for, which right. are... Um, you know, essentially the resumption and rehabilitation um, and reconstruction of Gaza immediately, starting with the hospitals, allowing people to immediately go back home. Um, and they want be to provided
2: with temporary housing while the reconstruction goes on. So, again, the built into the proposal is getting people back to the sites of their original homes immediately, even if they have to live in tents. Until the reconstruction happens right. but again right. they built into the proposal to make sure that a, a prolonged phased process can't result in the permanent displacement of uh, of the people in Gaza.
0: And that's what Israel is trying to do right now. I mean they're they're you know they're mining they're putting mines in all these buildings like we saw uh, at the beginning of John's segment. Um, they're trying to make the Gaza Strip completely uninhabitable um, before any sort of negotiations take place. I mean, they are just it is relentless and it is sadistic. Um, and uh, it's I mean, th- this is, you know, and, and it's even it, it's either bomb everything so that it's completely uninhabitable or push Palestinians out in, into mm-hmm. Egypt um, or, and both. I mean that's that's also their plan. I mean,
1: it's it's
4: it's. But that's clearly not going to happen. Which is what we're seeing right You're now right. is that the 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 Mossad and Shabak chiefs were meeting um, in Paris to essentially approve a broad um, agreement um, on a ceasefire, which is what the Israelis need as well. And and so the way that they had the way that um, the Palestinians have structured this proposal um it's premised upon the reconstruction allowing that yeah. part um to begin they want um to, machinery from civil defense so that people can dig out um from the rubble and they want guarantees that the prisoners will not be rearrested right. um and so they have built all these um itemized all of these things like uh restoring the telecommunications the water um, the food aid um, delivery um, throughout Gaza, which currently is one sixteenth of the needs, um, to have more than 500 trucks a day, and so they've built that on the civilian, um, the first stage of the civilian release. Um, and so, if these if these things don't happen, if Israel does violate um, this agreement, their soldiers will remain um, in in. Um, captivity; they will remain right. captives of the Palestinian resistance, which is um, the way that they've structured this. Um, uh, uh, to do that is is to um, essentially hold these soldiers, and Israel is on the position where um, they didn't dismantle the resistance, um, they didn't dismantle the Hamas government, they didn't return their captives, um, and so they really have nothing. Um, right nothing but genocide and destruction to to stand on for this five-month war.
2: And that, and, that, yeah. and that policy, remember, of course, Israel may have multiple goals with destruction and genocide. Certainly a clear one that has been expressed by many um, Israeli officials is ethnic cleansing, the removal right. of the Palestinian population. And we saw just uh, in the last uh, week or so, Uh, what was it, 12 ministers, Uh, you know, some large number of government ministers attending this this, um, Nuremberg rally-type conference calling for the resettlement of Gaza by Jewish settlers. So that's certainly a goal. But the other goal of all the destruction, as we know, the so-called Dahya doctrine, which Israel first uh, implemented in Lebanon in 2006, is... Uh, that you attack the civilian population you destroy the infrastructure you kill the families of the uh resistance fighters in order to break the resistance and in order to break the bond between the people and the resistance and that has clearly failed right. and so yeah. it it uh but i do wonder what it looks like for uh israeli leaders to climb down from where they are from these, you know, absolutist and extremist positions to accept something like this that seems like reality dictates, military yeah. reality dictates that they have to, but the, the, uh, you know, it, it's very hard to see them doing it given the corner they've painted themselves into, yeah. It's I, a I think that's, of defeat, yeah.
3: I think that's the 64,000 dollars question right now is how do they? Climb down from the position they've painted themselves into, and a, a small update that while we've been on there on air, um, on stream, as it were, um, some of the news agencies are reporting that Netanyahu has rejected the Hamas count offer, yes. and it does seem that in a press conference after meeting Blinken, he said that the war will continue until victory um but tomorrow is pointing out that the Israeli war cabinet is meeting tomorrow so um i guess we'll see what happens
2: and uh and also yeah. Osama Hamdan a senior uh, a a very senior Hamas official said in his press conference today which i haven't had a chance to watch yet i'm just uh reading a summary that Netanyahu's remarks on the ceasefire proposal show that he intends to pursue the conflict in the region. Um, and, uh, but again, I think that if you look at the Hamas proposal in detail, this is a proposal that is intended to bring um, life back to Gaza, calm and security to the people of Gaza, But a wise Israeli leadership, if one existed, would also see it as something to grab onto because it would also provide Israel with what it claims it wants, which is calm and peace and security and so on. But it just seems that Israeli leaders are absolutely incapable of that. So I guess the question now is if that's the position of Netanyahu, is it going to be the position of the United States up to this point The United States has been in lockstep with Israel despite the, uh, you know, uh, fake disagreements that uh, uh, they've had for, you know, public consumption where the U.S. claims that it's putting pressure on Israel while, you know, airlifting the bombs around the clock so that Israel can continue the genocide. But, you know, then we start getting into discussions about, the political calendar in the United States, and how the you know with Bi- Biden, uh, Biden's approval ratings are at historic lows for his administration, but also at historic lows for um, a president seeking reelection. Uh, I you know I d- I don't have all those numbers at the top of my head, but I read about this recently that you know uh, pre- other presidents who were defeated. Uh, after their first um, term, all had higher approval ratings than uh, Biden. So the politics of this in the United States where, as we mentioned earlier, we see Muslim and Arab Americans organizing and saying, you know, uh, don't try and scare us with Donald Trump because there's nothing worse than genocide. And if if the Democrats and Joe Biden don't pay a price for genocide, then we will never have any leverage and we have to be courageous and accept the, the the consequences of making Joe Biden pay a price for this position. So if people hold to that uh, and the polls continue to show this ongoing deterioration in uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, prospects, the question is, will uh, that translate into a uh, Real pressure on Israel from the United States, not out of any sympathy for the Palestinian people or respect for international law, but simply out of the political uh, needs and exigencies of the Democratic Party and the Biden administration. By the way, speaking of Biden, Tamara, do we do we have a minute to 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 put up Joe Biden's response to uh, Hamas's announcement that it had received uh, the a proposal. There is some movement, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement. There's been
0: a response from the uh, the, the. There's been a response. Oh, it's so painful. The opposition, but. Um, it, it, yes i'm sorry from Hamas but it seems to be uh, a little over the top we're not sure where it is there's a continuing negotiation right now there there is some movement and i don't wanna i don't want that's it yeah I'm so moving, i mean it's, my- it's- it's elder abuse at this point. Putting yeah, that. yeah. but aside
2: from that, look, what, what, what he said there, I mean, it is, it is painful to watch because you don't know what he's going to say, and clearly he couldn't remember the name yeah. of Hamas. Uh, but when he says it's a little over the top, what right. does that mean, a little over the top? What actually is Hamas and the resistance factions asking for? They're asking for an end to genocide. They're asking for people to be allowed to go back to their homes. They're asking for sufficient supplies of food, water, and medicine for people. They're asking for tents for people to live in while their houses are reconstructed. They're asking for uh, all of this, this destruction to be rebuilt so that people can live mm-hmm. normal lives. And they're asking for negotiations with, that would lead to a lifting of the siege in Ga- on Gaza, the, the tight siege that has been going on for 14, 15 years, and a permanent ceasefire that would produce a durable and sustainable calm for everyone. That's actually what the Hamas and the resistance proposal is. But Joe Biden is saying that's a little over the top. Reconstructing hospitals and supplying them with uh, equipment so they can treat people in Gaza, that's over the top. And I think that that was a reflection of how The United States government really thinks that Palestinians are just not entitled to Mm. uh, a normal life, uh, uh, the basic necessities of life. And of course, it is a major violation of international law that to use uh, humanitarian supplies, water, food, medicine, fuel as leverage in negotiations, as something you withhold from a civilian population in order to force them or their leadership to act in a certain way. But that's just become a norm in this situation where Palestinians have to negotiate for food. Uh, they have to negotiate for antibiotics. They have to negotiate for um, bandages. And and that's the point we've reached. And Joe Biden is saying it's over the top. They didn't ask for the moon even here. I mean, the they're, they're they haven't even raised in this proposal the bigger political questions about the future of Palestine. If this Hamas proposal were implemented in full, it would, uh, and, and respected by everyone, it would lead to a reasonable, peaceful life for Palestinians in Gaza and for Israelis, but it wouldn't address the much bigger questions about uh, the situation in Palestine, and yet Joe Biden is saying it's over the top, right. despicable. Um,
0: it, uh, yeah, I, I guess we're gonna see what happens. Um, we'll see what, and, and you know, we'll we'll see uh, Blinken returning to his home in Virginia um, with uh, with protesters still outside of his door. Um, incredible. Um, let's, uh, take a look at some of the comments. Asa, we had a lot, especially yeah, about lot. that first segment. Yeah.
3: Yeah. We had loads today. Um, and <laughs> we've got some good ones. So I wanted to start by running through some of the countries. As always, we had people from all around the world. Um, let's see, Trinidad. Cairo, uh, we always have a lot of viewers from Ireland, um, at least one from my home country. Um, Which is <laughs> Wales. Well, yes, yes, sorry, for, for listeners, uh, Wales, <laughs> Cymru. Uh, somebody from Germany, our commiserations. Um... <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's amazing that, that this isn't banned in Germany yet.
3: Yeah, um, Turtle Islands. Uh, the Indigenous name for North America, Copenhagen, Denmark, Norway. Um, I could keep going on and on. Um, thank you very much to everybody. Um, we were, um, obviously, people were very happy with our interview earlier on in the show um, with Hazami um, uh, barmada Is that how you say her surname? um is that yeah. Armada? yeah yeah Armada. okay yes um she, she um she was a hit so people were happy we' were having a live interview from this from the streetsman uh, of the protest outside Anthony blinken's house so uh that was a that was great thanks for joining us um and also we had a lot of um people commenting about uh, the section on BDS that we did as well um somebody saying um mm-hmm people are happy that a few mcdonald's have closed down in malaysia um somebody said "McHa ha ha which i found amusing um and we had a friend of the show regular viewer uh, roger waters of course of pink floyd um writing in suggesting a total boycott of eurovision um because of refusing to ban israeli entry to um to the eurovision Eurovision song contest when eurovision of course was it was in israel itself when was that a couple of years That's ago right. yeah yeah um, feels like a
0: decade
3: was, ago but yeah yeah there was a, a very intense campaign around that um thank you roger um we had of course a lot of um pro john elmer comments um and uh we had one in arabic if i can find it which <laughs> uh, do you, do you want <laughs> to explain that one ali or should we leave that as an easter oh, egg
2: hold, egg? hold on a second uh yeah that says hallelujah john duary and that <laughs> uh, uh it, it means uh, analyze this uh john duary of course uh, that's a reference to uh, uh faezid the uh, retired jordanian brigadier general who's become a massive uh, star on Al Jazeera with his uh, analysis of resistance uh, activities and videos and there was a famous uh, video a couple of weeks ago where a Qassam fighter emerged from a tunnel, fired his RPG at an Israeli target and then shouted "Hallelujah, dueri uh, uh, and then disappeared back into the tunnel, you know, analyze this Dwari. So. And that that became kind of a catchphrase all over the Arab world for a little while, uh, and again showed the interplay between the resistance fighters and the global audience. That yeah. They, they, well. They, yeah. So, so on, that... on
3: that point, I actually will have a viewer's question for John, which we'll put on the screen now. Uh, isn't it st- question? Uh, uh, isn't it strategically better for Kassam not to the, the Qassam brigades, the arm wing of Hamas? not to release the videos and keep the Occupation Army more in the dark about their tactics. What's your view of this, John?
4: Oh, I mean, just the information value of getting the videos out, I think, um, would, would trump that. But we, we do see the videos are careful. Um, we saw the IED one in Kanyunas. They blurred the buildings around it Um So we do see them taking operational security in the videos, but um, no, I think that that's very, the information operations are a critical point. Um, And so I think they are willing to sacrifice um, those positions. I think most of the positions they have to flee from anyway, after firing, because they'll be tracked, they're fired. That's why one of the reasons why you see them scooting out of the, out of the frame all the time is because um, they compromise their position just by um, carrying out the operation in the first place so I think that the the value of the information um, would trump any operational security although we do see them um, blur the videos in in key ways
3: great well thank you for that Thank you for that, Commander
2: John. Um,
3: <laughs> and I, I think
2: the, va- the value, you know, if I can just say, the, the value of understanding what's happening on the ground is so important because this kind of analysis of the resistance and the videos, you can find it on Al Jazeera and in Arabic media, but I don't see it anywhere uh, available to, to a global audience, to an English-speaking audience, the way we're doing it here, and I think if you don't understand the reality on the ground, you can't ultimately understand the politics. So, I do think there's a value to it. I, I, I know people that there's, there's certainly a satisfaction in seeing resistance fighters blow up Israeli tanks. I won't deny that, but I think there is a, a, a greater value also to understanding the full picture. And what we aim to do here is to provide the kind of information and analysis that you're not going to get somewhere else. Otherwise, what's the point? Uh, We want to provide something that um, adds to people's understanding and knowledge. Yeah.
4: And just remember, um, too, that Israel blacked out the Gaza Strip. So there's no communications, um, no proper communications. So we don't get um, any of that information that we would get from the civilian population. So it makes the resistance videos even more important um, under the blackout. 100%.
3: Um, we had uh, a couple of people as well um, mentioning earlier in the live chat um, this viewer says, uh, congratulations to Professor David Miller for winning his case against the University of Bristol. And another commenter um, who I couldn't find to save the comment pointed out that we um, did a interview with um, David Miller in 2022, just after he was fired by Bristol University for criticizing, for opposing Zionism and criticizing Israel's actions so go and check that out on our youtube channel thank you tomorrow's just put it up on the screen there david miller why we have to talk about zionism it will be in our podcast feed audio feed as well um on your um platforms preferred platforms. so check. and yeah give
0: us a, a thumbnail uh background on what happened to david miller and why this court um uh verdict is so important
3: david miller is one of the world's leading experts in well at this point in the one of the world's leading experts it certainly in is is islamophobia and how it um uh manifests itself especially in britain um but in the zionist movement and in in the israel lobby and um you know he's got a, a long history of academic um analysis of propaganda and disinformation and you know, around about a decade or so ago, he he moved on and started focusing on the Israel lobby, and he very quickly became a uh, primary target within Britain um, of of uh, the Israel lobby, um, and eventually they succeeded in in, in um, uh, having him fired. That he became a. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the things the propaganda points that said about him is that oh, students at Bristol University, his students felt threatened. Um, which was a complete lie. Um, it was an Israel lobby campaign led by uh, uh, the, the CST, um, a pro-Israel group we've talked about in the past many times, basically the British equivalent of the ADL, um, and the Union of Jewish Students, which is affiliated to uh, um, the Zionist movement, uh, and indirectly, uh, and it gets actually gets uh, funding from the State of Israel itself, um, and they found a student on campus to essentially front their campaign. Right. Um, well, a couple of students, including um, Sabrina Miller, um, David's um, coincidental namesake, who is now, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to dignify by saying she's a journalist, but she has um, employment in um, right-wing uh, tabloids in Britain. Um anyway we, uh, I, we I, 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 just say, yeah. I just
2: want to say I just want to say I I was kind of digging around on the bookshelf behind me I, I can't find it now but one of the books I have somewhere here is a book uh, uh, published in the 90s called rethinking Northern Ireland edited by David Miller and yeah. I read that book uh, you know maybe 15 20 years ago Uh mm-hmm. I had no idea who David Miller was. It's it's a brilliant book that really, I think, was one of the first, first um, comprehensive examinations of the situation in Ireland through the lens of settler colonialism. You know, believe it or not, until that time, people talked about Northern Ireland pre- primarily as a religious conflict or a sectarian conflict, and all sorts of different ways. And so this book, by edited by David Miller, profoundly changed the way people thought about uh, Ireland as what now seems very obvious in hindsight as uh, an example, like Palestine, like uh, South Africa, like other places in the world of settler colonialism. And that's to say, David Miller uh, has a very uh, uh, long and serious. Uh, history as an academic as a scholar as as someone who seeks understanding of the world and yet he was caricatured and demonized in the last few years by the israel lobby to the point where he was now uh, he was fired by bristol university which now uh, has been forced to acknowledge by a court of law in the uk by an employment tribunal that that firing was false that his anti-zionist views are protected, that there was nothing discriminatory about them, and it's an important consequential victory, not just for David Miller personally, but I think for all of us in this ongoing battle for the freedom to speak and advocate for what is right and just in Palestine.
3: Yeah, it, it's it's a very important um, precedent really in uh, employment law in Britain, so yeah. yeah so to say as well that uh, we have booked david for the live stream next week so um we uh, you know all all going to plan he will be on the live stream again next week to talk about that in more detail um and i also wanted to plug a recent um
2: conversation or a. Did I mean, with... I just say, Asa, we, we, uh, yeah. David has agreed in principle to come on the live stream, and we're trying to sort it out, but we're, we, yeah. we will, we will confirm it uh, as soon as we can.
3: Yeah, yeah, all being well. Um, yeah. He is, he's very busy at the moment. He's much in demand. So, Nora did this wonderful um, interview, which you should all go and watch or listen to with um, Layla Backer. Um, Noah, do you want to give us uh, a little preview of what that's about?
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's not an easy topic um, it, it, to cover, but I thought it was really important. Um, Leila Baker is uh, the regional director for the UN Population Fund, which is the agency for sexual and reproductive health, um, and she. I just wanted to ask her about what it is like for women uh, in Gaza who are due to give birth um, or girls and women who are menstruating in Gaza right now and uh, how Israel's ongoing attacks, the, the forced mass displacement, these overcrowded unsanitary shelters, Lack of medicine, lack of water, lack of food, lack of basic supplies are contributing to really uh, horrifying health outcomes for women and girls, um, and their babies. Uh, you know, women and their babies. Uh, what does dehydration and malnutrition and lack of prenatal care, um, psychological trauma and and physical trauma, um, how does that all contribute to uh, healthy outcomes for infants, for example? So really hard conversation but um i think a very necessary one you know especially when we have people like hillary clinton uh you know running around um talking about you know israeli feminism and 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 the you know girl boss uh, feminists in the israeli I, if army I may,
2: if i may say about that nora yeah th- this interview with leila uh becker is it Baker or baker baker yeah, yeah leila becker is so important. And Mm. the situation of of women and girls in Gaza is so horrifying and so deliberately inflicted. And it's getting little to no attention. And on Friday, so that's after tomorrow, Hillary Clinton, war criminal Hillary Clinton, is hosting a a, a conference at Columbia University where she's been given a teaching position Talk about safety on campus. What's it like when your professor is a war criminal? How safe do you feel then? She is hosting a conference uh, on sexual violence in wartime, which is going to repeat and launder Israel's lies about mass rapes. It's atrocity propaganda about mass rapes that we have debunked on this live stream now numerous times. And they're not going to be talking about this. They're yeah, and who else
0: is on the panel,
2: right? Well, who else is on the <laughs> panel? Jeffrey Gettleman, yeah. the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times fraudster who mm-hmm. uh, published that fraudulent so-called investigation uh, into mass rapes on October 7th. Mm-hmm. And other U.S. government officials like Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the, um, the, U- the U.S. ambassador at the United Nations, and a lot of ex-ex uh, ex, uh, government officials all pushing this anti-Palestinian atrocity propaganda. I'm mm-hmm. told that several prominent uh, scholars refused to take part in this. I guess they, you know, there is a broad understanding that this is political propaganda uh, disguised as um, disguised as an academic conference at uh, Columbia University. And they will not be talking about um, the, the the sexual violence that Israel is carrying out against Palestinian women, the sexual, reproductive, and health violence that Israel is carrying out against women as a whole. So I cannot recommend enough that interview uh, that you did by, with Leila Bakir, and I, I encourage people to watch it and share it. It's very important to share this information. 100%. Thanks. Well,
3: just to wrap up the comments, um finally, um a lot of people noticed a lot of our viewers this week noticed that our YouTube channel has hit hundred thousand subscribers and saying congratulations um so thank you everybody who has uh you YouTube know we just have to every... give us
0: like a physical plaque, right? We get like something in the mail for that.
3: Yeah, well apparently <laughs> there's a YouTube uh, silver uh, uh trophy for reaching 100,000 wow. subscribers. So um Amazing. We'll, it's a we'll participation see. trophy, we'll, but yeah. We'll see. We'll see on that one. Yeah. Um yeah, so thank you everybody. Thank you everybody who liked and subscribed the the stream. Um thank you everybody who's joined tonight and uh thank you for um letting us reach 100,000 subscribers.
2: Yeah. And more importantly letting You know, for us, like everything else, like our website, like social media, this is a platform to get the information out. And we do this in partnership with you. So take what we're saying here. Take the articles that we're publishing at the Electronic Intifada, especially from our writers in Gaza, uh, and uh, share them, spread them, and uh, don't stop talking about Gaza. That's right.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Tamara Nassar, behind the scenes, our producer and director extraordinaire. Thank you, Tamara, John, Asa, Ali, uh, and uh, everyone else at EI doing extraordinary work day in and day out. Thanks so much. Like and subscribe. You can subscribe to this YouTube channel and get notified when our next live stream is uh, scheduled, uh, but also uh, sign up for our mailing list. at Yeah. 11. That get
2: updates button at the top left of the yep. website. That's where you sign up. And uh, if you want to, and if you can make a contribution to our work, that's how we pay for everything you see is through the support of our readers and viewers and we will never charge for ei you'll never have you'll never see a paywall it's all this this work we do is free for everyone in the world but if you can make a gift to support it then you're giving this to the whole world so that that's how it works it's we can't do this without you so just a a a gentle reminder and and also another opportunity to say thank you to everyone who does? Especially those of you who have made the commitment to give us um, a monthly gift, which you can also do uh, yeah. at that at yeah. that same link.
0: Thank you, everybody, uh, and we will see you next time. Take care.